Welcome to the Hospital Finance Podcast, your go-to source for information and insights that can help you stay ahead of the challenges impacting healthcare finance. And now, the host of the Hospital Finance Podcast, Michael Passanate. Hi, this is Mike Passanate, and welcome back to the Hospital Finance Podcast. Each year, the American Healthcare Lawyers Association holds its Institute on Medicare and Medicaid payment issues, and this year was no different. Recently, Bessler participated and attended that meeting in Baltimore, Maryland, and we thought we would take this podcast episode to bring you some thoughts and and ideas that were heard from that particular meeting. And joining me is Bob Mahoney, who is a senior consultant on our reimbursement services team here at Bessler to share a little bit about what he heard there. Welcome to the show, Bob. Thank you, Mike. And I was in Baltimore for three days, full of sessions. Uh, It's a great, it was highly attended this year, the session on Medicare and Medicaid. Uh, it's a great session, and because of the location in Baltimore, they get some top people from Washington, D.C., and Baltimore, and CMS in particular, and top lawyers from that area. And if you're involved in Medicare and Medicaid reimbursement, it really is one of the top seminars to go to with a large, diverse speaking groups. And Well, cer- certainly um, one of the first ones we want to talk about is, is a heavy hitter. They, were, they had the secretary of HHS there, Alex Azar. Um, why don't you tell us what you heard in his session, Bob? Yeah, that was quite an event to see him speak there. I'd been there years before, and this was probably the top keynote speaker. And uh, he's the Secretary of Department of Health, and uh, so obviously it's big what he talks about. And the CNN cameras were there, and Secret Service was walking around, so that was certainly different than what you see in normal seminars. And one of the big quotes he got as he talked about the administration's health care policies, he said, and I quote him, Americans deserve a health care system that takes care of them, not takes advantage of them. We are taking a bold approach to reform regulations in order to deliver American patients to better care, lower costs, and a greater peace of mind they deserve. And this was said the, probably during the week that the 2020 budget was announced, and uh, there, was slash, there was cuts in it in the preliminary budget to Medicare and Medicaid, so they're obviously looking at it in a different direction of higher quality at lower cost. And you know, one of the big, another thing that he talked about is that he said backdoor drug rebates would re, would result in higher drug list price. So he under, you have to play by the rules and work in the, within the rules. But it was certainly an interesting speech he gave, and showing the administration's focus going forward on healthcare. Another uh, individual that spoke there was Clayton Nix, who's the chairman of the PRRB board, and he spent his time on appeals. Yes, and it's really great to go there and meet Clayton Nix and all the people who were there from the PRRB board, which is the Provider Relations Review Board, Provider Reimbursement Review Board, and to meet those people and him explain exactly how it's going to happen and how they, what their process is, and everybody submits an appeal and you know uses the lawyers there to submit their appeals, and they take a long time, and he explained in their process why it takes a long time, the process, the enhancements they made, and they've have done it that, you know, you can do it and electronically now submit your appeals, and that's certainly making things quicker, getting it to them quicker. But it's great to put a face with the name that you've, you can deal with throughout the years if you work in the appeal arena. And also what he said, which is interesting, I guess if you think about it, a lot of people complained that there was old course reports out there and they weren't being settled. So CMS and the Max made a push to close those course reports. Well, when they close the course reports, people go through them and appeals increase. And now they're seeing an increase in appeals as the 2012 and 2013 course reports were closed, and now they are being appealed. 
So the back, as much as they work on the backlog, there's a continuing flow of work for them, just like everybody else. Yeah, certainly a hot topic in the industry there. Um, and, and obviously this meeting, Bob, covers both Medicare and Medicaid. But um, when we talked before the show, you mentioned that uh, you felt like there was an increased emphasis on Medicaid uh, across all the presentations. What, what, are you, what are you thinking about there? Yeah, as we talked to you know, our clients and contacts down there, everybody's mentioned more Medicaid more Medicaid sessions happening. And I think what's going on there is we kind of see as the administration, the policy of as Medicaid expansion might go away, the, the Medicaid you have becomes more important if you lose those dollars and as states struggle, Medicaid programs are changing. And it is quite a big population and a big piece for hospital. You know, there was sessions for Medicaid fundamentals, you know, current current issues of Medicaid supplemental payments and financing, the changing face of the Medicaid program, you know, addressing social determinations and Medicaid managed care. And this is, you know, a big issue for hospitals, it's a big part of their client base. And like I said, with ex Medicaid expansion, Obamacare, the changes the administration's talking about, you know, and Alex Anzar did mention all that going on, going forward, that they're looking at everything. As payments go down, you need to understand how to maximize and understand what's going on in the program so it's beneficial to you or your hospital. Bob, we talked about the S-10 um, quite a bit on, on this program, and certainly that was a topic of interest there at the, uh, at the meeting as well, uh, both, both its current impact and, and recent audits. Yes, I mean, DISH is always a big issue. It's one of the major appeal issues. It's always been a change. And now with the world of S-10 coming in, it's been quite a quite a change to that whole process and going forward it's going to be a bigger change as CMS attempts to capture more data and recently about 200 hospitals across the country were picked that ordered their 2015 S10 and it was a struggle the order was a difficult audit and, uh, and their results have not been posted yet or what CMS plans to do with these but Elisa Keefe who is the works for the California Hospital Association, shared a letter that they had submitted to California on behalf of all California hospitals and the issues they had with the uh, audits for the S-10, and this, they could have a long-term effect. And most seminars talked about it. It's an issue that looks like now if the audits are difficult, what's going to happen is after they settle, appeals grow, and you can see how this all comes full circle at this seminar when everybody's talking about appeals and then changes to various worksheets. Bob, um, we're due for uh, dish cuts uh, coming up. They've been pushing those off, essentially, as part of the ACA. Was there any discussion at the meeting about that? Yes, there were several sessions about dish cuts, starting from Anzar speaking, and just that's why the Medicaid's so important, and the S-10 is going to be used to be cutting dish. And hospitals are just looking for other ways to make things right. And that's one of the reasons I think this year's was one of the most highly attended, certainly I've seen in the past five years, and most people said ever, because there's so many changes coming with this administration, with other things being the Obamacare, and all these changes coming, that if you get in this room at AHLA with the lawyers and the people from CMS, it, might, it will certainly give you a better understanding of what's going on. That's really a great advantage of the seminar to, to, to attend. Bob, thanks for that great perspective today. All right, thanks, Mike. Pleasure to be here. Continuing our discussion around AHLA, I'm joined by Mark Polston, who is a healthcare partner at the King and Spalding Law Firm. Mark, welcome to the program. Well, thank you, and um, I'm happy to be here. 
Mark, you were uh, fortunate enough to speak at this year's AHLA, and and you did speak around uncompensated care issues. So we want to dive into those uh, with you here on the show today. And um, in, in some of our notes and exchanges before the uh, the podcast, you mentioned that there is no uniform definition of what constitutes uncompensated care. So maybe you can start out by uh, talking about what the basic definitions of uncompensated care are and, and where they come from. Certainly, I'd be happy to do that. If you just start at like the basic level, really what uncompensated care at its most fundamental boils down to is you provided care and you did not receive enough you know, finances, I guess, or reimbursement to sort of cover the cost of performing that care. And, and that's, that's a very simple concept to understand, but there are many buckets um, of sort of uncompensated care that hospitals deal with. There's the concept of you know, hospitals provide charity care, for example. Uh, all hospitals have charity care programs, or if they don't have, call them charity care programs, they call them financial assistance programs. So when people are eligible for those programs, they get discounted off hospital charges, and you know, those, those amounts that they're discounted off of are obviously you know, care that's not being compensated because um, they're paying, you know, below those charges. Um, another sort of idea or concept of uncompensated care is um, bad debt. So let's say that you have um, a commercial uh, patient who has a commercial insurance, um, but that patient has a co-payment or deductible responsibility under their insurance, but they ultimately don't pay that. Well, that's bad debt, and people account for that as bad debt, but it's really uncompensated care because that's, they're not paying the portion of the cost that their insurance provider requires them to pay to you know, pay in for their care. So that's uncompensated as well. Um, and then there's another sort of you know, concept out there about uncompensated care, which is what about the amounts that you receive from an insurer, whether it's a government insurer or from a commercial insurer, that don't really cover your ultimate cost. Um, so for example, let's take a Medicaid patient. Um, everybody knows that the Medicaid program doesn't really pay at the level of cost uh, when they reimburse for their enrollees. So if a hospital provides, say, you know, an inpatient stay and the charges for that inpatient stay from the hospital's perspective are, let's say, $15,000, the amount that they get uh, from the Medicaid program is going to be substantially less than those $15,000 in charges. Those are just their charges, right? That's their price tag. But it's still going to be substantially less than ultimately what it costs the provider to provide that care to that Medicaid enrollee. That's uncompensated too. Um, so should that be sort of included in any sort of basic definition? Well, again, there's, you know, to your question, there's really no one um, idea of what uncompensated care is. It really depends on who's asking the question. But all of those concepts, you know, care that's provided through a charity, charity care program or a financial assistance policy, bad debt for people who theoretically can pay but decide not to pay, that could be uncompensated care. And then this other concept of the shortfall between what you do get paid um, either from an insurance company or from a self-pay individual but doesn't cover the cost. That's also in compensated care, but that's not really included in most individuals, excuse me, in most reporters' definitions for uncompensated care for, for a variety of reasons. So, you know, this is a somewhat um, kind of unwieldy answer here, but to get to the point, 
the, there, there is really no uniform definition of compensated care, but there are concepts that we talk about, charity care, financial assistance, bad debt, and shortfall that all can fit within the concept of uncompensated care. Sure, and, and you also look at um, things like Medicare, IRS, and, and GAP as part of those definitions, right? That's right. And so when I said it really depends on who's asking the question, that was an allusion to what you just talked about. Medicare asks the question of uncompensated care because it uses the amount of uncompensated care, and I'm putting air quotes around that that you can't see. Uh, it uses that definition of uncompensated care to distribute payments to hospitals that we typically think of as Medicare dish hospitals, but it distributes payments from a pool of funds that the agency establishes at the beginning of a cost reporting year. Um, and it says, you know, it's directed by, by the Medicare statute to total up the amount of uncompensated care each one of those dish hospitals provides during a particular period of time. And compare that to all of the uncompensated care that's provided by all hospitals who are dish hospitals. And so your ratio, based upon your ratio, uh, you get a little bit of slice of the pie that the government has come up with in this pool of dollars. It's a multi-billion dollar pool. So there's a definition of uncompensated care there that the Medicare program focuses on. And they've decided uncompensated care means the amount of charity care that a provider um, provides during a particular period of time, plus bad debt. Uh, but they exclude from that definition that Medicaid shortfall that I was talking about. So then let's look at the IRS, for example. The IRS um, requires uh, nonprofit providers to report the amount of charity care that they provide. And that's required by law so they can maintain their nonprofit status. But in their concept of uncompensated care, they actually only look at charity care in financial assistance policies. They don't include the concept of bad debt um, within, the, uh, within the definition of uncompensated care. And then, of course, all providers or people in the financial suite are familiar with the, the GAAP um, accounting policies, and those require uh, organizations uh, to report in their financials um, their charity care policies, report on their charity care policies, plus the amount that is provided consistent with those charity care policies. So depending upon what those charity care policies um, require, you can have a different definition of uncompensated care um, from one provider to the next. So there are always these sort of mushy sort of questions about what is uncompensated care. It depends on actually who's asking the question. And then finally, even within that framework of what is uncompensated care, if you look at these individual elements, charity care, for example, well, one hospital's charity care is very different than another hospital's charity care because there's no uniform definition of what a charity care program is supposed to be. So again, it depends upon who's asking the question. And even if the only one organization, such as CMS, uh, for uncompensated care payments is asking the question what your charity care and your uncompensated care payment may look like, or your program may look like, is very different than what another provider's may look like too. Great information there, Mark. Um, let me pivot a little bit and ask you um, the question, why does it matter uh, as to how much uncompensated care a hospital provides? Well, that's a great question. And part of it is what I was just talking about. If the Medicare program is going to distribute this pool of billions of dollars of, of payment 
um, to you know all of the dish hospitals, the thousands of dish hospitals around the country, based upon the amount of quote unquote uncompensated care that they provide. Well, then it makes a, an enormous difference as to how much you um, provide an uncompensated care, and more to the point how much you're recording that uncompensated care on worksheet S10 of your cost report, because that's the data source that the government uses for coming up with that ratio that you provide of uncompensated care. Um, so again, the, the message for all providers is, you know, playing within the rules of the game, uh, being consistent on regulatory policy, how can you ensure that the amount of uncompensated care that you're reporting on that worksheet is as high as possible um, so that you can advantage yourself as compared to uh, all the other providers who are dipping from the same pool, right? It's a zero-sum game. So that's, you know, if, if, if finances are, are your thing, that's the most immediate reason why it matters what is uh, the definition of uncompensated care and how much you're providing. But I think that there's also going to be in the future sort of um, other measurements of uncompensated care. Right, let me rephrase that as, there are going to be other ways in which the government is going to be making decisions for hospitals based upon the amount of uncompensated care that they provide. And so people should really be focusing on these various definitions and where the government may draw, um, uh, you know, sort of the line between who provides enough compensated care and who doesn't provide enough uncompensated care in the future. Let me give you an example of that. So in the past, the government has come up with several programs to help safety net hospitals. The DISH program is one of them. The uncompensated care program is one of them as well. Um, but there's also the 340B discount, uh, drug discount program. And the way in which the government has sort of divided the haves from the have-nots, i.e., who is, you know, who is uh, eligible for and who should qualify for getting some of these um, subsidizations from the government, has in the past focused upon the number of low-income individuals that you provide services to in, in the inpatient basis. So that's how you decide who's in the 340B program, for example, how high your Medicare dish percentage is. But there's been a big recognition that that's probably not the most refined way to figure out who's providing uncompensated care um, to others in the community. And so the government has pushed for transparency on this issue. A CMS did it by focusing upon um, what uncompensated care a provider is recording on its uh, cost report worksheet. But when it comes to the 340B program, there's a lot of focus upon reform of that program. And it wouldn't surprise me, in fact, the idea has been floated already, that if there is going to be reform of the 340B program, perhaps a better way to figure out who, uh, which um, covered entities or which hospitals are eligible for um, participation in the 340B program, perhaps quote-unquote uncompensated care is the better way um, to, divide the ha to divide the haves from the have-nots. And so the point of all this is, you know, five or six years ago, nobody really cared about the uncompensated care so long as they could report something to the IRS. But now the amount of uncompensated care you provide is become a, it's become a huge focus, uh, and it's because it's going to make financial differences. So if you've been just following the old rules and haven't been keeping up with how the definitions of uncompensated care are shifting and being refined, and you're just playing by the old rules, you're going to be left behind. Uh, you need to figure out what the new rules are. You need to figure out how they apply in the, in the context in which you're seeking to report those and what the financial consequences are going to be for you. 
That's a great bridge to my next question, Mark. Uh, what sort of things should providers consider doing knowing that uncompensated care is a somewhat of a, a fluid concept? Right. Um, that's a really good, uh, great question. It's one that I get a lot. I think what they want to do uh, is ensure they, one thing that they have to figure out, for example, is um, to what extent is chasing after uh, their bad debts, um, frankly, worth it? Like, is the juice worth the squeeze in chasing after um, bad debt? Hospitals typically do that by, um, you know, trying to do some internal collecting. Uh, and then if they can't collect on that bad debt, they send it out to, um, uh, they send it out to third-party collection agencies. And the wrinkle here is that the, while the Medicare program will, will pay you and reimburse you for uh, unreimbursed Medicare bad debt, but you have to treat Medicare bad debt and, and non-Medicare bad debt in the same way. So if you send out some bad debt for collection, you got to do the same thing for Medicare bad debt. And that all has to come back from outside collection agencies uh, before you're allowed to, to claim that as a reimbursement. So there's sort of a timing issue there. Um, do you want to um, you know, claim that as bad debt um, and let it stay at the collection agency where you might get some money in? Or do you want to just say, you know what, we're going to write all that off, put that on our S10 because that's valuable for us on our S10 um, because now I can claim it as bad debt today rather than a year or two years from now. If I can claim it as bad debt and Medicare considers that to be uncompensated care, then I've raised my, my amount of uncompensated care. So they have to think about these timing issues and whether the traditional way of chasing after bad debt still makes sense now that, um, now that the definitions and the uses of uncompensated care are changing. I'd say another thing, and, and I'll leave it at this, um, since the uh, definition of uncompensated care in all circumstances is linked to hospitals' charity care programs, every hospital should be going back and looking at their charity care policies and ensuring that they are, um, there's, no, there's no requirement that um, you, you know, provide charity care at various income levels. You can make all those decisions on your own, but what the government does look for is whether or not you're following those policies. And so what you have to ensure is that your care-to-care policy that you're putting in place is not so sophisticated and doesn't require so much collection of information um, that inevitably the people in your, whatever it's patient financial assistance or whatever department, aren't going to follow that policy because it's too difficult. You need to ratchet some of that back, still having you know, documentation requirements, but ensuring that you're not going to have some so many documentation requirements that an auditor could come through and say, well, you know, you're not really following your charity care, so we're going to disallow this as charity care. That's caught up a number of providers in the recent audits from the Medicare uh, Uncompensated Care Program. So they need to be cognizant of that as well. Mark, are there any other uh, changes or updates to uh, Medicare Uncompensated Care payments that you'd like to share? Yeah, I think one thing that everybody should be focusing on is um, in the upcoming um, proposed inpatient perspective payment rule for 2020, uh, which should probably be out any day now, um, CMS is going to uh, announce again its policy for how it's going to calculate uncompensated care payments. And the big news is that there were um, several audits uh, done of hospitals uh, in the past three to four or five months. Um, these audits began back in uh, the last quarter of 2018, 
and they were audits of uh, selected providers' worksheet S10s. Uh, and some of those providers found that uh, they were surprised by the results of the audits. Uh, the agency was fairly aggressive on some issues. Uh, there were some big issues that were reversed um, after some lobbying to the agency. Um, but there's no doubt that many of the providers have had adjustments um, for those uh, time periods. Um, and the other concern is that the agency will use those adjustments in the calculation of upcoming uncompensated care payments for fiscal year 2020. Well, is that fair, you might ask yourself? Um, there are a number of hospitals. This is the first time the agency has ever audited a worksheet S10. And they didn't audit everybody, of course. They only audited a select number of hospitals. And I don't think they did that randomly either. They selected out uh, hospitals with high amounts of charity care. Um, so those hospitals now have these negative audit adjustments, while there are other hospitals out there that didn't have those audit adjustments. Is CMS going to allow that sort of basic unfairness uh, to you know, impact the amount of uncompensated care payments. That's something I think we're going to have to focus on when the when the proposed rule comes out. It's possible the agency won't use the results, uh, but it's possible the agency will. And you know, depending upon which side you fall down on, you may want to fight one way or the other hard for that. Great insights, Mark. If someone wanted to learn more about your practice and what you do, where can they go? Well, they can go to the King and Spalding website. Uh, you can uh, contact me there. Um, I have my biography. It's on the King and Spalding website. Uh, the last name is Polston, P-O-L-S-T-O-N. They're also happy to, you know, reach out to me by email, mpolston at kslaw.com. Mark, thanks for joining us today on the podcast. Thank you very much. So continuing our discussion around the AHLA meeting, I'm joined by Kristen DeGroat, who is the Compliance and General Counsel here at Bessler. Kristen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So, Kristen, you had an opportunity to uh, attend this year's AHLA, and uh, one of the things that you and I have talked about is uh, the use of social media, and I know you attended a session on that, and while that was maybe specifically uh, pointed towards lawyers, there's obviously implications for uh, provider organizations generally. So, um, could you share your thoughts on that with us and talk about some of the pitfalls um, that came to mind for you for not only lawyers, but other healthcare professionals? Sure. You know, healthcare-related entities and those that they employ, uh, whether it be doctors or nurses, allied health professionals, you know, anyone that could partake in the healthcare, you know, related field, it seems like they all have blogs or LinkedIn profiles, Facebook pages, Twitter accounts. Uh, there's just so many types of social media out there that they can use, you know, in addition to lawyers, we use those same same sites. But, you know, we all use them then to come across to the general public who will either be using our services, um, whether it be the doc services or a nurse or actually, you know, providing or receiving care at the healthcare entity. You know, everyone needs to be careful, you know, what they post. So whether, let's say you're a doctor and you're, you have a blog and you may be posting about what you believe a certain type of procedure should be, and then you may relate it back to, well, hey, when I perform this at X entity, you know, this is what we do. And the entity may say, well, wait, 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 that's not what, how we perceive it. That's great how you perceive it. 
But let's say the entity doesn't come back and, and say anything. Let's just say there's silence. Is there anything out there where it says, okay, your silence then is your acquiescence to that you actually provide this type of care or provide this type of service? Specifically, uh, for a lawyer, uh, when I think about LinkedIn, I think about there's a skills and endorsements section where someone can, can say, hey, you know, Kristen, per, you know, can, can provide X service for us. Well, what if that's not a service I provide? Then I have a duty to say, look, thank you so much. I appreciate the endorsement, but I can't accept this because that's not exactly a service I provide. That, that's not, you know, what I do in my day-to-day -day functions. Well, I would think that that would be similar for a doctor or a nurse or anyone who could be providing care or an entity. But I can control that source. You know, I can go on and say, hey, that's not me. You know, I don't want to get that out there and be liable for any of the repercussions that could stem from that. But let's say there's a site where I can't control, you know, a, a rating site, uh, maybe a Yelp or another source that says, hey, you know, I give so many stars to this doctor for providing this service. Again, it goes back to that acquiescence. Does the silence mean, yes, we do this, and, and here's where we go with it, or do we have to actively say, no, we don't do that? And, you know, I think it's from a practical perspective. We should say, hey, look, we don't do that. We appreciate it, but, you know, hey, we... Thank you for the review. It was great, but that's not really something we do. Practically, we probably should. Um, I don't know how we would accomplish that in all, all instances because there's just so much type of social media out there. But I think that's, that's something we need to think about. And, I, you know, something in thinking, something very innocuous. You know, maybe you said, Oh, look at how adorable the, let's say I'm a NICU nurse, and look how adorable, you know, we, we decorated the NICU, and, but let's say in that, and you post a photo, and you don't realize, but at the bottom of the photo, and maybe it doesn't show a picture of, of a baby, but what happens if it catches the edge of their name? And now you've put information out there that maybe doesn't affect you personally. It's not, hey, this is an endorsement of the skills you provide, which are not, you know, correct. But now you've actually released protected information. And, and so there's, we have to be very careful and very aware of, of what we're posting, even on let's say our personal site. You know, let's say that was the nurse who was who posted that was on her her personal site, not the hospital's, you know, Facebook page, but actually her Facebook page. So I you know, we have to again be very very aware of what we're doing. And so in looking at these pitfalls that that could happen, we need to always be looking at before we post anything, before we um you know, look at the skills and endorsements or accept these skills and endorsements. You know, we need to think, how will we be perceived by those that will come to us for our services? So again, whether it be a lawyer or a doctor or a healthcare entity, 
you know, we have to control not only from an entity perspective, but from the individual perspective, which can be very difficult, again, because there's so many sites out there. But I think as long as we're aware and looking at how we could be perceived or what's out there, and I think that will be the, the only way and the best way to protect yourself. And maybe not just staying quiet, but actually if there is a way to come back on a review and say, we, while we appreciate this, you know, that really doesn't apply. Or, you know, reaching out maybe to the social media site itself and, and requesting that, you know, that posting be taken down. Although sometimes <laughs> once it's out of the box, it's hard to get it back in. So again, always thinking, forward thinking, not back thinking, uh-oh, now how do I fix this? Great thoughts, Kristen. Thanks very much for joining us on the podcast today. This concludes today's episode of the Hospital Finance Podcast. For show notes and additional resources to help you protect and enhance revenue at your hospital, visit Bessler.com forward slash podcasts. The Hospital Finance Podcast is a production of Bessler. Smart about revenue, tenacious about results.